is Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. Time for episode 31 of the Barnhart Podcast. Well, we survived the 100th anniversary of the miracle of the sun, but what about the octave? In, <laughs> in the UK, the sun is turning blood orange, and they're saying it's because of the Sahara dust coming out from the deserts, but somehow that's avoiding all of Europe, so I don't know if that's a sign of anything or it's just random. Uh, something that's not so random, we did get some feedback. We always get feedback in email. We don't always mention it. We would greatly appreciate it. I got an email feedback saying that from somebody who said, I listened to the podcast today, and it seems that you're trying to limit them to about an hour, plus or minus. Maybe you have some research that shows this is an optimal amount of time, but I would listen to you for hours and hours if possible, so keep on yakking. Um, there's not research per se. I mean, I, I've, I remember seeing somewhere along the line, somewhere in, in, in my research of podcasts that 40 minutes is like an optimal time. I forget why that is, but uh, I, I make the joke with Ann that I want to keep it to 74 minutes or shorter because that's what fits on a CD. Now, we're not putting these shows on CDs. It's just a tongue-in-cheek thing. I say that, oh, this is going to be a two-CD version when we're done. But uh, no, there's no particular research. I would try to keep it at about an hour because that's a, a convenient amount of time. I, I think personally, whenever I see a podcast that goes uh, at past an hour and a half, this is going to be something that I'm going to be listening to in increments over time. Uh, as opposed to something 40 minutes to an hour, you tend to listen to those straight through and then, and then move on to something else. So there's no hard and fast research on that. I didn't know if you wanted to chime in on that, Anne. Um, if I were better about doing the um, timestamps and doing the, the timestamp little um, write-up that sometimes goes in the in the podcast post and notes, um, that's my job. And I'm the one who drops the ball on that because listening to myself is just like the eighth circle of hell. But sometimes I understand, you know, I have to do this. I have to get these timestamps done. And it's um, if we could go longer and they could be they could be longer in duration, it seems to me, if the timestamps were done every time and then people could peruse through and say, oh, I want to listen to that section. That sounds interesting. Or like you said, super nerd, people could listen to it in blocks and then it's really easy to go back. And if you can only listen for 40 minutes or so, you can you can look at the timestamps and say, OK, yeah, I got through that part where they were talking about that topic. Now I need to start at the 41 minute and 15 second mark to pick up where I left off because I haven't heard about I didn't listen to that topic yet so it's kind of on me for not doing for not doing the timestamps um, and that emailer made a very good point um, about normal mainstream radio and this is one of the reasons why I just I only did like two broadcast radio you know like AM FM um, over-the-air radio interviews in all the time that I was, you know, in in that that aftermath of when I did the Koran burning and all of that, because he makes the point, this emailer, that like a three-hour radio show, like a Rush Limbaugh, I think does three hours a day. There's only one hour and 50 minutes of actual show, in quotes, of of Limbaugh. The other, what would that be, an hour and 10 minutes is commercials. If you've ever done a, um, a commercial radio interview or been a guest on commercial radio, it's maddening because you can't, you can't say anything. You can't develop a thought. I mean, the, the interviewer, the DJ or whoever it is asks you a question. You get like two or three sentences into your response. And then it's, and now let's hear. We've got to go, we've got to go to commercial right now, but hold that thought. 
And and I Hold jump in, thought. I jump in and interrupt you on purpose there because that's about how it sounds in a lot of yes, cases. Like it's you're exactly getting, you're like getting that. to the really good point of a discussion. It's like, hold that thought. Yep. We got got to go to to a break. And they and, ne- and then they never come back. Exactly. They never come back, and they ask a fresh question because you know we have to hear the um, we have to hear the advertisement for the local Mazda dealership or whatever. Um, and it's it's really frustrating. And I think this is also this phenomenon. Super, Super nerd and I were talking about this yesterday. It's the same on TV. You know, it's it's exactly the same thing. Like you watch, I guess Bill O'Reilly isn't on Fox News anymore, but I remember, you know, a decade ago when I was still watching TV, um, even a decade ago. So someone would go on O'Reilly and be and is being interviewed by O'Reilly. O'Reilly asks the question and, of course, takes forever to ask it because it's all about O'Reilly, 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 O'Reilly. The interv- the interviewee starts to respond and then it's exactly the same dynamic. They get two, maybe three sentences into their response and O'Reilly or whoever it is, any of them. It's like there's this this truly this rule of this seven second. You've got to keep you've got to keep changing everything. You have to you have to up, you know, cut, cut, cut and keep people. I guess they think that that's that's what the average person wants is just keep changing the topic, keep changing every seven to 15 seconds. That's all a person gets. And so I think that one of the reasons, again, Super Nerd and I were talking about this yesterday, um, that, that people, it, it, it's so surprising to me that people want to sit around and listen to me talk for an hour or two or whatever it is. Um, it's just because there really isn't anything, it seems to me, outside of the podcast genre in which someone can just develop a train of thought. You know, you have one question, one topic, you start talking about that topic and you just, you explore it thoroughly. And if that takes 30, 40 minutes, as it it often does on this podcast, then so be it. If that's what it takes and that's what it takes. That is so rare. The notion of working through logical progressions, developing ideas, um, so on and so forth, and even occasionally going off on 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 an interesting tangent. That those tangents can be extremely valuable. There is no there is no place for that in in the contemporary mainstream media paradigm. And so I do think that that's one of one of the values certainly that the podcasting genre has. And Super Nerd and I were talking yesterday. It's the the thing that I've learned now that we're on. This is episode number thirty one. I I always used to marvel at people like Limbaugh or whoever who who would do three hours a day. Oh well, okay, now we know three hours is really only an hour and fifty minutes. But I can tell you right now that I could sit down every morning and open up Drudge and open up Canon two twelve Frank Walker's website Canon two one two dot com and um and which is kind of the trad catholic drudge it's just a headline aggregator open up those two news headline aggregator sites and sit here and just talk about stuff that's on there easily for an hour a day now you know super nerd has a life to live in all of this and we can't do that but i now i now see and understand how that would be that would be very possible it would be very possible to sit and do that um so or pick we, topics we, like uh sections of the mass i mean i still i, I roll my notes over yeah. from one show to the other so when, when i'm done with this show i'll I'll save my current notes as the next show number 
and topics we don't get to just stick around on the list as topics. So we're down. I've, I've got about seven topics on my list. I know we're not going to get oh, to yeah. them. But down at the bottom of the list, we still have the thing about uh, the, the next section of the mass to talk about. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are definitely topics that, that can be well researched out. Yes, I am kind of still, <laughs> when I get time, doing research for the next Bitcoin installment. Right. I've got, I've got right. a friend here uh, in town who, who knows the smart contract stuff inside and out. I've, I've been trying to get time with him. But the, back to the original point here, one of the advantages of podcast, well, two big advantages of podcast, it's audio only. So you're not mm-hmm. necessarily sitting around, uh, say, for example, like a YouTube video. Some, you, could, you could go on at length, and a lot of people do. Uh, developing ideas, and some of them are good, some of them not so good. But you kind of, with the problem with the video is you kind of have to sit down and watch it. You can't do something else while uh, consuming that that media, uh, unless you have enough uh, technical knowledge to to know how to download the video, change it to MP3, and then put it on your your uh, mobile device and, and listen to mm-hmm. it while you're doing something else. Which you've just turned turned it into a podcast at that point. The, yeah. I, think, I think the great thing about podcasts and especially long form podcasts is you can do other things while you are consuming them, like uh, mm-hmm. mowing the lawn or doing housework or commuting or even your job. In some cases, uh, I get an email from from somebody who, who does janitorial work. And this is, you know, it, this is something great to keep your mind occupied while you're making the floors, you know, shine. So, yeah, this is I, I totally understand this. And, and actually, some of my favorite podcasts are three hours in length. I don't listen to every single episode. But the great thing about these three-hour interviews with people, their interview shows for the most part, is you can really dive deep on topics and develop thoughts that simply aren't possible. Even in an hour-long or even two-hour-long radio interview, you're being stopped every seven minutes because of a commercial interruption. And these long-form podcasts, they have their their, uh, sponsors mentioned up front. But after that, it's two and a half hours of let's just dive into the, to a particular topic and develop it as far as it will go. And those are pretty interesting. Now, granted, I only listened to about a third of some of those podcasts, um, only the really interesting guests. Uh, but the conversations are worthwhile because you're really getting into something at that point. Right, exactly. It's, so it's not, I think it's not a combination of sound bites, And I think that's what a lot of media is these days. Oh, exactly, exactly. And it's, you know, that is... I think that that is a one of the demonic strategies that's been unfurled over the past 50 to 100 years is to get to get post-Christian, post-Western society to a point where people ju- just can't think. I mean, in order to think in any sort of logical progression, you have to hold a train of thought for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes. And I think that what what they have done through the, me- through the media is specifically target target the culture such that people are not able to think and hold a train of thought for any prolonged period of time and therefore can't work through any sort of logical progression and that's what that's what enables them to you know be self-contradictory um you know violate the principle of of non-contradiction right and left that the inability of the audience to to think for a long enough period of time to even realize the contradictions to even realize that the the principle of non-contradiction has been has been violated i think that's all part of it i think it's all of a piece so yeah i think i think podcasting is a good thing and um we're going to keep going and, and and i think we should, we should be able to let me rephrase that. I think we should do some some uh, episodes where we do a little more discussion and feedback because we definitely in, enjoy the emails and, and read them all. We don't always uh, bring them up on, on the podcast, though, unless they are particularly relevant to a topic that we're going to discuss anyway. So 
Uh, this is something I, I've, I've mentioned, and maybe every five or seven or eight episodes, I don't know, uh, just just devote uh, picking off four or five emails and, and just discussing them in depth, uh, whether or not we had a topic to go along with it at all. And uh, sure. speaking of speaking of emails, you got another interesting email that you formed into a blog post yesterday. Yes, absolutely. I got a I received an email um, yesterday or day before yesterday from the priest who has been offering the Tuesday Barnhart benefactor masses. So that's Father Tuesday to everybody else who listens. Father Father Tuesday, <laughs> and um, he has been. Uh, he has been deployed. He hasn't departed yet, but he's departing very, very soon. Being deployed into the Middle East, um, yes, another military chaplain. Uh, we're we're popular with the military chaplains, um, and but actually, I have referenced this priest before on the blog. This is the priest who voluntarily, voluntarily, in order to avoid having to command priest chaplains underneath him in rank to commit sacrilege, Eucharistic desecration, purely because of Amoris Laetitiae, purely because of this satanic document out of the, you know, vomited out of the, the bowels of the Bergolian anti-papacy, purely because of Amoris Laetitiae. He was told by his, by his higher-ups that he would be, for example, he would absolutely be required to give Holy Communion to unrepentant adulterers who had no intention and who were proudly wallowing in mortal sin that he would have to give them Holy Communion because Pope Francis said so. Okay, so when I posted about about this particular priest chaplain um, a while back, what he had done is that in order to avoid having to order um priest beneath him to basically commit commit eucharistic desecration he voluntarily took a reduction in rank from 06 to 03 so now now all he is is a captain and understand what that means is that if he does that he's leaving all of that difference in the retirement package on the table he's he's walking away from all of that money and then it's a non-trivial amount of money you can you can look up on the internet what these uh, retirement packages are what the monthly payment is by rank and it's it's a non-trivial sum of money. And so, I don't, I don't and know it, if you know this, Anne, but as as a military chaplain, the minimum rank you can even hold is O three, which uh, captain mm-hmm. in, in the um, in, in the regular military services, and that would be a lieutenant in the navy. So uh, by going from O six to O three, he got busted down to the lowest rank. Well, took took a demotion to the lowest rank he could possibly hold as a chaplain. Precisely, so that he would not ever be in a position wherein he would have to order another priest beneath him in rank to uh, to desecrate the Eucharist. Exactly, that's the point. And so he he de- he voluntarily asked to be demoted all the way down as low as he could go. Okay, did that. Now he's pretty close to, he's in fact within a year, I think, of of full retirement. And so when he was at 06, 
he was not in the deployment pool. By going down to 03, he then was reinserted into the deployment pool. And sure enough, now he's being deployed. And I got I got one email, fair enough, from somebody saying, well, what does this guy expect? If he's a military chaplain, doesn't he expect that being deployed is going to happen? Isn't that the point? Well, sure. I mean, absolutely. And I said, I said in the post that I make, let us offer a prayer of thanksgiving now that the the men and women sadly there are women who are being sent into combat areas but thanks be to god that now the men and women who are being deployed into wherever he ends up in the mid-east are going to have this spectacular holy good priest um to minister to them thanks be to god and and thanks to the divine providence and when i was initially corresponding with this priest you know, I said, sometimes I have to admit that the divine providence makes me, you know, wrinkle up my nose. And, and it, it it's very hard to appreciate the divine providence in real time sometimes. Um, of course, we're not we're not happy that he's being deployed into the Middle East. I mean, who would be? Who would be? We don't we don't want him to be put in harm's way. We don't want anything bad to happen to him. But yes, then then again, he is a military man and this this is his job. And um, the the men and women, wherever he ends up, will now have this this good priest. And it's all part of the divine providence. And we need to we need to appreciate that in real time as much as we possibly can. Um, But now he's being sent over there. He's going to be put in harm's way, obviously, um, potential potential for injury and death. And um, in addition to in addition to losing all of this rank and all of this um, all of this retirement payout that he he would have conceivably received. Now, this is important because here we have anti-Pope Bergoglio and we have all of these people constantly all of the time saying, well, there's nothing I can do. I can't say anything because um I would get fired from my job. My career, my career track would be over. I would never, my academic career would be over. Think about all of these, all of these losers in in the Roman Curia, who everybody, all the reportage, Ed Penton just keeps reporting and reporting that what these people are telling him off the record is that they all live in absolute fear of Bergoglio, and there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do, and. I just I just look at what this priest has done. He he put God first. He put his foot down and said, I am not going to do this. I am not going to desecrate the Eucharist and I am not going to order chaplains beneath me to desecrate the Eucharist. No way. And if that means walking away from a whole lot of money and if that means now even being deployed into the Middle East, I, I'm sorry, but I'd like to see some of these um some of these academics and some of these uh, curial prelates. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine some of these men getting deployed into the Middle East? I mean, they'd be they'd be sobbing in the they'd be sobbing in the corner within a matter of minutes. Let's face it: some of these men are not not the most manly figures on the face of the earth. Here's a true a true man who stood manfully and said, no, I will not do this. And I will sacrifice, I will sacrifice money, and I'll even sacrifice having to be deployed again into the Middle East, but I'm not doing this. Now, 
when some academic or some priest comes back at me and says, well, there's nothing I could do. This is why I'm just disgusted, just disgusted at this, at this effeminacy, this intense effeminacy. There is absolutely no willingness or even seem, even seemingly the capacity for any sort of, of self-sacrifice and not even, and not even, don't even use the word sacrifice, just a reduction in pleasure, a reduction in, in the standard of living the lifestyle. Well, I can't, I can't say anything because if I cross my bishop, I'll get exiled out into some rural parish. Oh, boo hoo, boo hoo. Do you realize you, all of you who are whining and complaining and living in fear that you might get transferred to a rural parish, there, there are probably people in that parish, and let's face it, older people for whom death is fast approaching, who have spent the last 50 years begging God in prayer to send them a good holy priest, maybe even one who would offer the holy sacrifice in, in the, the Tridentine rite. And did it never occur to you that maybe you are the answer to their prayers? Why, why do people in rural areas, why do they not matter? Why do their prayers not count? All that matters is that you get to have a, a cushy parish in, in, some, in the suburbs of some major metropolitan area where you can have the lifestyle you want. Oh, heaven forbid you should be out in the middle of nowhere in rural Kansas or rural Nebraska or rural North or South Dakota or rural Wyoming where, goodness, what would you do with yourself all day long? I don't know. Maybe you could pray the divine office. Maybe you could pray the rosary. Maybe you could do Eucharistic adoration. I mean, it just, it stuns me with these people. These priests who are just the, the the priority of their life is is to not be sent into a rural parish or anywhere undesirable. Uh, it reminds me of the, the story fa- of um, Father Michael Rodriguez, who uh, I, I want to say it was on mm-hmm. the topic of homosexuality. He uh, uh, went to the El Paso City Hall and, and and basically upbraided them for something. And this is El Paso, Texas. I think the almost the entire city hall is nominally Catholic or supposed yeah. to be nominally Catholic, and he upbraided them for something. I forget the exact details. And uh, in, in, in reward for that, his bishop sent him to some rural dust um, hill in, in, in the remote part of the, of the, of the diocese. And mm-hmm. it was exactly what you were saying. The people there were like, thank God we finally got a priest thank we've, God, been, we've been praying yeah. for. And it, yep. it's not like priests like that don't have access to continue to do their job. I mean, they... Even I remember hearing a priest saying that even even when the day comes that priests get arrested for being priests, that's going to be a huge blessing to the people in prison because they're not going to be the only Catholics in prison at that point. Exactly, exactly. And um, <laughs> I, I just wh- where's the faith? Where is you know do the right thing and God will provide? And and now with the internet, how can you say? I mean, you can be in contact. With all of your family, all of your friends, you're getting exactly the same news. You're getting exactly the same everything as everyone else. Can you imagine what it was like back in the day when father was sent out into, you know, rural western Kansas 
And he basically didn't have any real communications with anyone except by letter. And even then, in rural Kansas 100 years ago, that was hit and miss. Imagine imagine the Jesuits when the Jesuits were still the Jesuits, when they said, okay, you guys go to Japan. The, the, the assumption was is that you would never return when you were sent out on some deal like that. Go from Rome to Japan and evangelize Japan. Well, you're either going to be killed, get sick and die, or it's just the, the understanding is, is that you're going to spend the rest of your life there. And there's not going to be hardly any communication, not just with, you know, with the the head of the Jesuits or other priests back in Rome or something like that. You're not going to have any communication with anyone because you're going to have this language barrier you're going to have to to cross the language barrier etc cetera, etc cetera. and then as as with what happened to many of them in Japan you you just might be killed they might decide to kill you but this is your job this is the great commission these human beings are just as precious as everyone else and our lord specifically said go go to the ends of the earth baptize, spread the gospel, get these people into the church so that they may go, so that they may achieve the beatific vision. And, and, you know, now people are complaining because, oh, I might be sent to a rural parish where you'll still be on Facebook with everybody and you'll still be emailing everybody, et cetera, et cetera. And you can Skype and talk to anybody you want to at any time. Give me a break. Give me a break. And what about, you know, the others, or the academics? Well, what about my family? Well, yeah, what about your family? How, what kind of an example are you setting to your children in this moment where we have this arch heretic anti-pope and you won't say anything against him because your job is more important? What kind of an example are you setting for your children? They're going to remember all this and they're going to put two and two together decades in the future and and realize what happened. And I, I if I were one of these academics who are arguing against, well, I can't say anything, I can't do anything. I'd be terrified that my children imagine the moment when your children put the entire context of what went on in these dark days together and realized that you, their father or their mother, but usually it's father, you, their father, chose money and career track over our Lord and his holy church. I would be, you should fear that day. I mean, you fear, fear the day of your particular judgment first and foremost, but also fear the day that your children figure out what it is that you did. And the, frankly, if I may say, the extraordinarily poor decision that you made to not stand up and not act in these dark days. Yes, it is imperative upon us to act, and it doesn't necessarily have to be heroic. I mean, even even the small things matter in, in terms of the faith, and, and the small things set an example, not necessarily in such stark relief as as massively heroic actions like uh, getting your rank cut in half and, and your pension and all that, but it could be even little things like um, stopping a disturbance in church. I think you, you said you had a story about that. Yeah, it happened just, just a couple of days ago. Um, I'm at Adoration and Benediction, and 
you know, there's in in cities, there are these people who are con artists, they're professional con artists, and they target churches and they target Catholic churches. And they they come in and what they do is they cause some sort of a disturbance and then they they gauge the reaction specifically of the priests um, but also to some extent of the people there present if there are any and sure enough the the church that I was in where um, um, adoration and benediction happened to be going on um, one of these people came in and oftentimes what they'll send in when they're doing one of these probes one of these tests is they'll send in a pregnant woman um, so they they send in this pregnant woman. She waits until the divine praises. And then she takes out her phone, turns the speaker all the way up, calls someone, and then starts yelling into her phone, having a conversation. Hi, how are you? I mean, just as loud as she can, intentionally, intentionally trying to cause a terrible disturbance at, you know, you know, the divine praises. I mean, you know, our Lord is exposed in the monstrance right there on the altar. And I think she knew exactly what was going on and she picked her moment. And so once again, nobody does anything. So it's, it's on me because I'm not going to sit there. I'm not going to sit there and do nothing. I jump up, genuflect, go back and confront her and tell her silence, silence in the church get out. If you want to talk on the phone, go outside right now. And, you know, she was like, well, I'm pregnant. I can do whatever I want. A clear indication that this is a setup and this is, this is a pure con act. Why these people do this, what they do is they come in, they gauge the reaction, first and foremost of the priests, but secondarily of the people. And if they meet no resistance or if everybody just lays down and dies in front of them, which happens a lot, what they start doing is that they start coming back and they they essentially shake down the parish and say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll stay quiet, but you need to give me 50 bucks. And the next time it'll be, well, yeah, I'll stay, I'll stay quiet, but you need to give me 75 bucks. And they're essentially shaking down the churches with this threat of just constantly disrupting um, liturgy or whatever's going on. Um, it's a shakedown operation. These people are criminals. They should be arrested. Um, in a just world, I, you know, in a world in which Jesus Christ is a sovereign king, I should have been able to physically manhandle her out of the church and and give her a good smack across the face too if if it came to that and yes i would smack a pregnant woman across the face i would of course never never get anywhere near the child but i'd hit her across the face you bet i would i didn't do this of course because you know this is another this is another aspect of the con if you do anything to them they they will they will try to call the police, sue you, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So one has to be um, extremely meek in, in situations like this. And remember what meekness is. Meekness is power under control, 
power under control. It's not weakness. The, the fact that the word meek has been conflated with weak, I think, is largely a function of the fact that in the English language, the two words rhyme. And I think it's nothing more than that. Meekness is power under control. Um, you can still be extremely powerful as, you know, God himself, our Lord says over and over, I am meek. That doesn't mean that he's weak. I mean, he's infinitely powerful, but that power is under complete and perfect control in charity and in justice, which he, of course, is infinitely. But the point is, you have to mount some sort of response to these people, even if it isn't 100% successful. What this woman who was this test, who, who was sent into this church, what she now saw is that if they come in there and they start, they start in with their crap, there is going to be probably some sort of resistance, even if it's only from the lay people inside the church. What they want is they want to go in and they want people to just fall down in front of them and die. And, you know, this is all fed again by anti-Pope Bergoglio. I think at one point anti-Pope Bergoglio said that we should kneel before the poor and reverence them. And they they hear this crap and they they're con artists at heart. And so they say, okay, this is huge. We can go in, send even a pregnant woman in who says I'm pregnant and I'm poor and then just steamroll the whole lot of them. And if they give you any resistance, you can just say, well, Pope Francis said, well, Pope Francis said, well, of course, nobody has the right to come into a church and disrupt the liturgy. And what she did was commit sacrilege. I mean, sitting there, and she initiated the phone call on speakerphone. I heard her. I heard her take out her phone, turn the volume on the speaker all the way up. You know when someone adjusts, adjusts the volume either up or down on the speaker on their phone? You and get it the goes, audible beeps that they're... Yeah, the audible beeps. Dee, 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 dee. You, she did that. She turned it all the way up and then initiated this phone call just to see what the reaction would be. With the Blessed Sacrament exposed, um, this is this is an act of sacrilege, and she knew what she was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing. And um, what, what's going to happen, you know? Um, you need to provide some sort of response. And I don't know if it was the last podcast or two podcasts ago where we were talking about if something happens, if someone comes into a church or any any space, a public space, inside, outside, anything, if you're confronted with a shooter or an attacker, you run at them. This is this is very similar. It's a very similar idea. You have to respond when things like this happen. You don't just lay down and die. That's what they're counting on. That's what they're hoping that that they will see is that everybody just lays down and dies. Everybody's too terrified to respond. And then they know, okay, we can just totally roll over these people. And so now this applies to, again, shooters. It applies to um, look at the Harvey Weinstein situation, okay? Fight back, do something, say something, act. Don't just say, there's nothing I can do. The, the situation in the church today with anti-Pope Bergoglio, do something, act, resist, respond, at least show them that, you know, we're not just all completely supine here. Um, and I just thought it was, a, it was an interesting thing and an interesting, um, yet another interesting example. And I expect that we're going to see more of this. And I think Super Nerd asked the question, it's, it's, 
it's amazing why why haven't there been any attacks by musloids on on the traditional Latin mass yet. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's probably just a, a matter of time. But I also think the musloids are probably um, not so completely stupid that they don't realize it, especially in, in the former U.S. There's going to be a lot of people who are concealed carrying at, at a Latin mass parish. But still, if something happens, you have to respond and you have to respond with strength, you know, Think about, be conscious of your physical comportment. Be conscious of how you are holding yourself and how you are projecting yourself. If you if you go up to these people and are groveling them and asking them, please, please, if you don't mind, would you please not disturb our liturgy? No, 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 no. That that's not how that's not how you deal with situations like this. You don't go up to a criminal and say, "Excuse me, would you mind not committing this crime?" Um, you you go up to them and you tell them how it's going to be. You tell them that they will stop now, and you have to you have to be ready to back it up. And and this so, this is that works for people who know exactly what they're doing and and have clear intent on on this. But it, it also works with people who may be mentally ill. Let's be honest. We've we've discussed this topic before yeah. at length. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the mental hospitals that we need. They've all been shut down for economic reasons for the most part. And this is, I, I, in my experience, these are the people more likely to cause a disturbance. They're not altogether there. They do immediately yeah. respond to three or four guys who are 6'5", yep. 260 walking in their direction. They tend to stop their disturbance and wonder what exactly these people are going to do to them. And and they're, when, when you have that kind of immediate reaction uh, with two or three people spontaneously you know, willing to escort them out, they tend to be rather compliant because, they again, they don't know what's going to happen in response. And, you know. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to telegraph that I'm not. I'm not going to be um, anything other than polite to them. But let let them think whatever they want. Yeah. You know, when when right. uh, some some people are walking their way. But the point is, yes, you do have to have to uh, be ready for these kinds of disturbances. And and you it, don't. It's a wonder you don't, there's not more of them. It really is. It really is. And you don't you don't negotiate with a schizophrenic or a drunk or something like that because these people are non compos mentis really. And there's nothing there's nothing really to negotiate with. Um, so that that just that premise in and of itself, you don't negotiate with someone who is utterly detached from reality because you cannot find you cannot find any sort of a common base premise. You tell them you are leaving right now and we hopefully would that it were that it was you know three or four guys over six feet tall who would spring to their feet and go into action i can't emphasize how important this is when something like that happens do something don't sit there and look around and wait for someone else to do it don't sit there and wait for father to come out of the sanctuary and do something about it that's no you should be the people in the nave, especially the men in the nave. If something happens in the nave of the church, it's the responsibility of the layman in the nave to handle the situation precisely so that father doesn't, you know, have to come out of the sanctuary. In fact, during the holy sacrifice of the mass, father can't come out of the sanctuary. You, you beat me to it. I was going to say that. 
Exactly. Um, so, you know, sitting around, and I mean, again, this is a, a function of effeminacy, sitting around waiting to receive orders from someone else. I can't do anything unless someone else tells me exactly what to do. No, sometimes in life, you have to think on your feet. And sometimes in life, you are given a tempor- temporary field commission, let's say it, to be the police officer, you know, the soldier, whatever it is. And then, then that commission obviously expires as soon as the situation is diffused. But you you don't sit around and look around and wait for someone else to act. Be a man. Show some leadership. So, show some initiative. And if there's a disturbance in the church, or it doesn't even have to be in the church, let's say in a restaurant, in a public space, man, if something's going down, don't stand there and wait around for someone to come and help. And this also harkens back to our conversation about, you know, the Vegas massacre and all that. The cops, well, you're going to sit around and wait for the cops. The cops are not obliged to to assist. They're not obliged to do anything. Oftentimes they won't do anything. Their job is to clean up the mess afterward. Why don't you make sure that it doesn't turn into a mess? If a group of men can spontaneously spontaneously get together and move against someone who's, you know, doing some sort of a disturbance or something and diffuse the whole situation before it gets out of control, don't you think that's preferable to sitting around and waiting for the cops? Now, can I promise you that that some some litigious piece of crap isn't going to try to sue you or something if you lay hands on another person? No, I can't promise you that. You can't live in fear of that. You have to do the right thing anyway. Um, so just just more food for thought. It's not a formally uh, thought out. Um, well, as far as I know, I, I, it may not be formally thought out. If it is, I'm not part of the group. But I, I know that where I go to church, there are a few people who uh, carry different kinds of badges. And um, who knows if they're armed or not. But I also know that there are some folks who are in the legal profession. So if something were to go go down, I would imagine some of these are designated witnesses uh, to yeah. be able to uh, counter any any assertions if, if somebody decides to get litigious. And then there are designated actors to handle it. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's something to think about. And uh, just while you're talking about that, I did a quick Google search of, you know, what, what happens if somebody somebody mentally ill comes into your church service? And there are there's no shortage of, of articles out there. Uh, for example, when the homeless and mentally ill wander into church, and some of these are going to be, you know, compassion and, and, and try to understand them and meet them where they are. And some of them are going to be a little more practical, but this is how you handle it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I would also ask if, you, if, you, if this is something where you think this might be a legitimate situation where you might have to deal with this. A lot of, a lot of mass centers, especially traditional uh, Catholic mass centers, are in urban areas. I've heard it referred to as the uh, traditional Catholic part of town because the rents are yeah. low enough. You can, you can actually um, use a parish for this. Um, you might might engage law enforcement and say, we're concerned about this scenario. We know it happens in other places. How do you recommend that we deal with this and have somebody take notes? And, and so if something ever does happen and somebody decides to get litigious, say, no, we, we, we met with uh, Officer O'Brien and talked about this. And, and these were the exact guidelines and steps he said to follow. So that's going to diffuse a lot of legal situations right there uh, if Absolutely. you are worried about it. Uh, it's not the biggest threat in the world, but let's be honest, the, the level of mental illness is going up. So it, yeah. it's it's something it's something to think about to keep in mind. Um, hopefully, it never becomes a, a a an active situation where it's an actual threat to to life and limb. But if necessary, you have to mentally has prepare. To yeah, you ha- you have to mentally prepare. It's one of those things where if you've not 
dedicated any time to running through scenarios in your head and thinking about how you would react and what you would do when it happens in real time, you're going to get caught with your pants around your ankles. This is just yet another example of one of those things that you need to be thinking about in advance. What would I do? What would I do? And like Super Nerd says, God willing, please God that you never have to actually execute on any of this. But, but the, the moral responsibility is there. You need to at least be somewhat mentally prepared. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, what I've heard the training for concealed carry uh, is that you're, you're trained not only the, the all, all the correct procedures for safely carrying a weapon, but also if you have to fire in self-defense or in defense of another, you are going to have to give a, a um, what they call it, an allocution or whatever to the police. And the idea is you're going to have to describe why you fired, that mm-hmm. you understood where the background was, and mm-hmm. all these different things. And it sounds like uh, in the description of this, you're teaching somebody how to uh, talk to the police without implicating themselves. Is No, it, it, it's to be aware of what it is you're going to have to explain if you ever pull uh, your, your concealed weapon and fire. And it, the point is you need to think about this in advance. So let's say you go to um, the gas station to buy gas or, or whatever it is you buy there. And while you're waiting to... Um, to pay, somebody walks in the door, just to go through an, a mental, a, a mental um, situation here is like, let's say this was somebody with bad intent coming in, uh, glance over your shoulder and see how quickly can you come up with a, a firing situation where you, you are, or you are certain that there's nobody behind that person mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. definitely hit them. Cause if you fire without being definitely hit, uh, you, you'll probably be in a lot of trouble. I've heard it said that every, every bullet that you fire has three lawyers attached to it. So yeah. You, yeah. you have to be absolutely certain that you can, uh, articulate why you're doing these things. And the point isn't to be gung-ho Rambo and all this. It's to, to no. have that mental, um, that mental um, um, habit of, of being able to quickly assess a situation and not, not just articulate it later, but to be able to know how to respond immediately. And yeah. in a situation where we're talking about somebody who's either mentally ill or wishing to cause ill, walking in, in the back door of the church or the side door or whatever, knowing how you will deal with this ahead of time informs how you will actually respond to it as opposed to being frozen because you have no idea how to respond. Indeed. And, you know, like an example of someone who's mentally ill or something like that, odds are they aren't armed. So you need to make that determination immediately. And at that point, um, let's say, you know, we go back to super nerd scenario where three or four men, six feet tall in their thirties, forties, and fifties stand up and go and confront this person. Okay. That person can very, very easily be physically manhandled and overcome outnumbered three to one or four to one. No question about that. So there is no reason in the world, it seems to me, that if you have an unarmed, mentally ill person, that you need to be drawing on that person, you know? Um, three or four men can handle one man, especially one mentally ill man. And, you know, don't don't be afraid to, to you know, throw some fists and do what you need to do. Even if you're knocking the guy out, get him out of there. Get him out of there. And um, think think about this. Yeah, it, it's exactly the opposite. People would say, oh, people, people like this, these gun-toting freaks, they're just totally looking for a reason to discharge their weapon. Oh, no, it's exactly the opposite. You, sh- you need to be going through these exercises so that you don't um, escalate a situation where it's completely unwarranted and completely unnecessary. Um, the mentally ill person being being a, a, a key example of this. 
almost certainly not armed. Now, if he is, that that's a whole different can of worms. But it's if it's just some drug-addled or drunk guy who staggers in and starts rah 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 during during the mass, you know, if you're prepared and you've thought these scenarios through, you're going to instantly be able to make the correct determination that this can all be handled with with um, with just physical brute force of myself and hopefully two or three or four other guys. This can all be taken care of very, very easily. You have to be able to just so quickly be able to make these determinations, formulate the response, the correct response, and then execute that response. This is virility. This is potency. And this is what is so utterly lacking in our culture today. And it has nothing to do with heterosexuality, homosexuality, men who are as as straight as a board, as straight as a board, can still be wildly effeminate. Because effeminacy is that vice that is contrary to the virtue of virility. And so anyone is susceptible to this, including the most heterosexual of men. If you're the kind of guy who just who just sits and waits for someone else to come and take care of situations, you need to sit down and look at yourself and ask yourself, do I have the virtue of virility or am I effeminate? Am I unable to think, formulate a response, and then act on that response? Um, and sadly, I think most men in our society today are definitely far on the on the spectrum from virility to effeminacy. Are just way over on the effeminate side, even though they're they're completely straight. It's it's not a question of homo of homosexual. That's that's not what it's about. Or even even not another consideration too. This this is an, another good reason to be confessed, stay confessed, and and and, um, and and be up to speed in your prayer life. Because I, I could see a situation where somebody who would want to intervene, let's say in, in a shooting situation or something where, where it's it's actually a definite case of, of um, bodily harm. They would want to intervene, but they might think, I need to go to confession first because I can't yeah, die in this situation. Well, <laughs> too <I> mean, late. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean. Yep. It's it, an excellent point. Yeah, you're 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 not just cheating yourself and possibly sending yourself to where you don't want to go, but you're you're allowing could possibly allow somebody else to get hurt too because you you are in a situation where you say I can't charge this person because I don't I can't lay down my life right now. Um yeah. why don't you fix that? Yep. yep, exactly. Exactly. Excellent point. So, we are at 50 minutes. Do we want to uh, go on to another topic or call it a short episode and go for a second one this week let's let's call it a short episode and go for a second one this week okay uh, as general reminder uh Anne's benefactor masses are on mondays tuesdays wednesdays and thursdays with also a weekly requiem please join your intentions with these masses this podcast is produced by super nerd media if you found some value in this episode and would like to return some value you can donate at the website supernerdmedia.com slash donate which i'm going to gut that website in the next week and re- reload it getting ready for my podcast actually I would Yay. like to, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got, I don't have anything in the can yet, but I've got about six or seven um, interviews lined up. Um, nice. I would like to thank uh, a recent donor, Susan, as well as John and William, who mailed in some checks and cut out the PayPal tax. Thank you very much. Uh, the email address, if you have feedback, questions, or comments for the podcast, is podcast at barnhart.biz. Uh, any party thoughts for the week or for the, the middle week? 
Um, please keep all of our priests in your prayers. Um, and the priest who is uh, who we discussed earlier uh, last Thursday, just out of out of charity, he offered a requiem mass for any of my benefactors because you know I've been I've been around now for several years. Any of my benefactors who might have possibly passed away, um, which at this point I, I, I would assume that I I do have a benefactor or two who has probably died in the interim because my audience does tend to skew slightly older. It tends to be you know older men. Um, but yeah, uh, so we've had uh, we had a requiem for any of my benefactors who might have passed away, and also. Um, it was offered for the intentions of any of the benefactors or supporters who were bereaved. And I already have received an email from a person who said, you know, my wife just recently died. And I can't tell you how much it means to me to know that that requiem mass was offered not only for her, but, but for me, because I am definitely, definitely bereaved. And so thanks be to God. And, uh, just keep these these priests in your prayers. Oh, the other thing I want to mention quickly, and I'll p- probably put this in writing on the blog too. A lot of people have been asking and inquiring if the priest who we have been discussing, who's getting ready to deploy, if he needs a portable altar. Uh, of course, that was like the first thing that I asked him. Um, first of all, the St. Joseph's workshop folks, I've, I've you know kind of emailed back and forth with them a little bit because they've received a lot of orders since I posted a link to their site and everything. Um, and he says that there, it takes about two months for them to turn around in order, or they're two months out right now on turnaround. So we don't have that much time with this priest. But this priest did tell me that he has a, it, it sounds really cool, actually, he has a portable altar, and it's not, um, it's not super portable as in you carry it like a briefcase, like some of the St. Joseph's ones are. Um, he said it's actually kind of in a trunk, but he's taking it with him. So he'll have that, he'll have that trunk altar so to speak and it's from it's from the late 1800s so i bet it's i bet it's really beautiful and really cool and and uh, i'm maybe we can get him to send us some pictures at some point when he gets over there and we can see you know where he is and the holy sacrifice being offered and so forth over there in whatever location he'll be at in the middle east um so no, we don't need to crowdfund and do a portable altar thing. Um, but I would say, you know, still for all of you folks out there, if you've got a priest who needs a portable altar, spectacular thing to do, or even buy one to, to have for yourself in your own home so that if if and when things get to the point where we, we truly are underground and the anti-church, as I've warned, takes over all of the real estate, which if, if it goes full schism, understand the Bergolian anti-church will get every square inch, every square inch of real estate. The governments of the world will unanimously recognize the Bergolian anti-church as the quote-unquote owner of all of this real estate, and we will be left with nothing. So, you know, just as as a family, it might be a really good idea to, or a group of families together, pitch in and get one of these portable altars. I think the least expensive on the St. Joseph's site, I want to say was right right under 500 bucks. I mean, they're not cheap, but you know, nothing, nothing of quality is. And this is, this is a, just a good thing to have an incredible gift to give a priest, uh, a new priest who's going to be ordained or some, a seminarian who's going to be ordained, uh, vestments and a portable altar. And I might even put the, the portable altar 
in, in these dark days as a higher priority even than vestments. And it's it's kind of assumed at this point that a seminarian is going to get a set of vestments from somebody. Um, the portable altar thing is kind of, though, not on a lot of people's radar. So that would be a an excellent, excellent gift to give a seminarian who's getting ready to be ordained. Another idea while we're doing uh, spiritual prepping is to have um, what I've heard referred to as an underground priest kit, in addition to the portable altar, but have um, have wine and actual communion, communion wafers set aside. And it, I mm-hmm. mean, obviously unconsecrated, but uh, these are things that well, of you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to have a priest <laughs> special license to buy these things. You can go to any oh, no. sacramental supply shop and buy them and then just yep. keep them on hand. I mean, they may you may have to replenish those or, or, or replace them every year or so. Mm-hmm. Um but the idea being that in, in, in case of dark times, just add priest and you have mass. You've got all the, the requirements right. for it. That's right. That's right. Do it now, folks. Don't don't wait around. The, just every single day you open up and Bergoglio has said or done some some new fresh hell. Um you know, just denying the gospels, the whole death penalty thing. We could do it. We could do an entire show on that. Maybe, maybe that'll be topic number one on the next show that we do is, um, you know, people just say, Oh, Oh, Bergoglio, he just made a flippant comment about how the, the death penalty is never acceptable folks. The, the logical consequence of that, um, it, it basically says that the church, scripture, absolutely everything has been teaching error for not just the last 2,000 years, but because all of these death penalty citations go all the way back to the very beginning. Um, it's saying that the entire thing has been an error, which, again, thinking logically, log- logical progression, then God isn't God Therefore, Christ isn't God. Therefore, Christ's death on the cross is meaningless. Therefore, we're not saved. Therefore, and again, you just you get on the flight to Switzerland to commit euthanasia. That is the logical consequence of things like this. So it isn't just, you know, anti-Pope Bergoglio is running his mouth. Um, These things have have massive consequence. And this is why beating the dead horse one more time. My prayer intention is that the Bergolian anti-papacy be publicly acknowledged as such, that he be removed, that the entire Bergolian anti-papacy obviously be nullified, and that Bergoglio the man repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and eventually achieve the beatific vision. It can be nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. Because if it's anything less than that, then the knot is not undone. And it's also based on a lie that this man is the vicar of Christ on earth, which I I mean, at this point, I, I just I just marvel at people who still cling to this. Um, and just a quick point, you know, we look at, for example, the uh, quote unquote filial correction that was put forth. And, you know, I've got I've got friends who have signed it, so on and so forth. But, you know, almost from the opening sentence of the filial correction, you're basing it on a false premise and you're having to lie. Just you know, think about that. If you have to lie in order to maintain your premise, doesn't that tell you that there's something wrong with your premise? And you say, well, Anne, what are you talking about? How are these people lying? The lie is, is that it keeps, they keep saying, and the document says, we are not accusing the Pope of being a heretic. Of course you are. And of course he is. He's not the Pope, you see. False premise number one, Bergoglio. We're not accusing Bergoglio of being a heretic. Well, of course you are. That's, that's a lie. Of course you're accusing him of being a heretic because he is a heretic. 
see having to tell lies like that in order to you know maintain a gloss of 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 cohesion of coherence to your position to your base premise that tells you right there um, if your base premise is true, you never, ever have to lie in order to defend it. Uh, just yet another proof set, yet another proof set that this guy is not the Pope. The fact that even the people who are trying to quote unquote correct him have to lie in order to be to maintain the appearance of coherence when they're making their arguments. It's another proof set right there. You got a big problem with your base premise, folks, and that is he's not the vicar of Christ on earth. So there's the horse beating for for this episode, super nerd. <laughs> it's certainly an unprecedented situation in the church. And um, yes, prayers to help bring this this to resolution and uh, start moving us back toward some form of, of, of sanity in, in, in the leadership of the church would certainly not go to waste. Indeed. So until next week, or until next time, I should say, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. 